Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. That is late night. Crazy. This is love. Tell me what it is. Cause I never felt like crazy. This is love. Tell me what it is. Cause I never felt like crazy. This is love. Tell me what it is. Cause I never felt like crazy. This is love. Tell me what it is. Cause I never felt like crazy
back to Zaydee's Late Night. I'm your host, Mr. Divabetic. And did you know that all of Divabetic's over 150 podcasts are available on demand for free at iTunes, Blog Talk Radio, or posted on Divabetic's divabetic.org website? Coming up, we're talking about weight loss journeys with diabetes. But first, I'd like to share a few responses we've received from a question we posted on Divabetic's Facebook group page. We asked, what helped you adjust to life with diabetes? Answers range from Autumn saying, finding the right support group, and Anne-Marie saying, enrolling in diabetes education classes, to Hattie's response of talking to her doctor, and Anne saying, working with certified diabetes educators. The general theme, though, that stood out among our responses is best summed up by Belinda's response, which was accepting her reality. And her thoughts were echoed by another one of our divas, Dana, who wrote, there is no way to address diabetes if you're unable to accept your diagnosis. We'll be talking more about acceptance with, uh, with the diabetes psych, Dr. Wendy Satin Rappaport, later on. Straight ahead, a new international survey about uh, of family members of people living with type 1 and type 2 diabetes, sponsored by Nova Nordisk, reports that the vast majority of families worry their loved ones are having low blood sugars, also known as hypoglycemic or hypos. Joining me to discuss the findings of this study in more detail, uh, the talk hypo survey, excuse me, is my first guest, Professor of Family Medicine, Division of Endocrinology and Biostatistics at University of Western Ontario. Please welcome to the show, Dr. Stuart Harris. Hi, Max. Uh, It's great to be. Hi. uh, Thanks for inviting me to be on the show. Thanks again for inviting me. I'm joined by my co-lead in the project, Alexandria Rasky-Lewing, who who helped design the study and carry out the analysis. So what would you like to know about this study, Max? I'm so glad you could both be joining us tonight to celebrate National Diabetes Awareness Month. You know, I found this survey so interesting because you chose to focus on addressing low blood sugar events from a caregiver's perspective. What led you to create the type Well, you know, it's a good question because very little is actually known about the impact on hypoglycemia on family members. And uh, if you look at, if you kind of uh, look at the world literature, there's very few articles that have been published on this or studies that have been carried out. And in fact, as we certainly identified in the study, it has a huge impact, as anyone with diabetes is aware on family members in terms of their, their, their day-to-day worry and concern and involvement in their loved one who's at risk for hypoglycemia. Yes, and I, I wanted to talk about the results. So first of all, how did you conduct the talk hypo survey? Who, how many people did you interview for this or survey? So I think, you know, I'll turn it over to Alex to walk through the details of the survey, which uh, we're very excited about the results because we did this in a very short order of time, and it's already had a a, a huge impact uh, on people involved in diabetes and diabetes care. Alex, do you want to kind of explain the uh, survey? Yeah, sure. Um, So the study was conducted across multiple countries around the world, and it spans uh, North America, so we had Canada and the United States samples in the study and multiple countries in Europe, and we even sampled uh, participants based out of Japan. So in total, 4,300 family members of people living with diabetes were interviewed uh, in this study. And so 
these individuals identified as being parents or step-parents of people with diabetes or spouses or partners of people with diabetes. And it was a cross-sectional study, so that means that we just rolled out um, a single questionnaire, and this questionnaire aimed to ascertain or aimed to understand what individuals' uh, perceptions of uh, are around low blood sugar of their family members. And as Stuart mentioned, uh, this has rarely been studied before in the literature. And so while we know that diabetes can have an impact on those who are involved in the care of, of their loved ones, we knew very little about the impact of hypoglycemia on family members of people with diabetes. All right, so let's talk about the results. I want to focus on two that stood out to me, and then you could go on to tell us more of the results. But the two that popped out of uh, out at me that I'd like to get both of your reactions are, are that nearly three in four of the respondents report that because they spend time helping family members manage hypoglycemic events, they spend less time on other activities. And then the second thing that stood out to me was that 76% of those surveyed believe that conversations about low blood sugar events would be helpful. So let's take the first one. So it appears the vast majority of people, family members, uh, seem to be a little bit, um, I guess, angry that they're, they're spending so much time on helping to treat someone with a hypoglycemic event based on this information, or they feel like they could be, they, they've lost time in doing some of the other things they might enjoy, or maybe just day-to-day -day activities. What, what were your feelings on that? Can you give us a little bit more insight? Uh, sure, I can start this one off. So um, in addition to the points that you just mentioned, one thing that the survey found was that the vast majority, so 91% of respondents felt that hypoglycemia was an important factor in the overall management of diabetes as it pertained to their, to their loved ones. So, I mean, this sort of uh, sacrifices that a family member might make to be involved or to be more involved uh, in their loved one's um, diabetes management really speaks to the possible burden that it can have on them, um, not necessarily in, 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 a, in terms of negative emotions, but just the fact that they really do think that it's important and that their involvement uh, is, is, is important and could be possibly beneficial to their loved one. Yeah, it really highlights the day-to-day the -day existence that uh, loved ones have in, in someone in living with someone uh, at risk for hypoglycemia. It's not just the event of hypoglycemia, but it's the ongoing worry and concern uh, and involvement in, in trying to prevent the, the low sugar reaction or help manage it. So uh, what the study really highlights is that, that it's not just an incident uh, 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 event, it's the, it's the constant worry about and involvement around the risk for hypoglycemia and the episodes if and when it comes. All right, and, and so that kind of sparks this next one about these same people, 76% of them really wanting more conversations about low blood sugars. I assume that's everything from treatment to the emotions and mental attitude of the person and what they actually think they're experiencing, and we're talking about the person who has diabetes. So is that what you were gathering from those conversations, that people really just wanted to get more of a sense of how it feels, what should we do, uh, do you want to talk about it kind of attitude from family members? Yeah, I think, you know, with this, this is a really important finding that it really quantifies, in, in, if, if you would, 
the, uh, the role and importance of conversation. So in other words, family members and people at risk for hypoglycemia with diabetes are constantly having conversations about this. It's part of their day-to-day discussions that they have. And, and in the, the respondents who said that com- they had regular conversations, they felt it was a very helpful, uh, proactive sort of thing that, that helped them feel more confident and helped their loved one feel more confident about what to do and how to manage it. It was like, a, uh, 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 you know, from a, a talk therapy perspective, it was something that was seen as a very positive uh, uh, situation. In addition, the other highlighted uh, effect of conversations uh, had to do with uh, the role of conversations with healthcare providers. And this is a really important take-home point in that conversations were felt to be useful and respondents felt that they would like to be more involved in conversations with healthcare providers uh, and felt that it might, in fact, lead to improvements in hypoglycemia risk management and care. Well, you know, I I was a uh, caregiver for my former boss, Luther Vandross, who had type 2 diabetes. And um, when I found him after he experienced a stroke, I felt like I was the most ignorant person in the world. And I was just so regretful and ashamed that I didn't know more. We didn't talk more about his diabetes. I also have a brother who's living with type 1 diabetes who at times has been somewhat combative when he's having a low blood sugar. And so, you know, I I think this is really interesting and I I find it really valuable. I'm just wondering what sources or resources are out there for caregivers? Because I know a lot of caregivers are like myself. They don't know how to begin that conversation. A lot of us are led to believe that, uh, you know, people are referred to as diabetics. So their, their ownership of the diabetes is on the person living with diabetes, not necessarily on the caregiver. So I'm just curious, like, what resources you would share to help caregivers who might be experiencing the stress or anxiety around this situation? Uh, well, sorry, there's, there's quite a few things. Uh, you know, through traditional uh, uh, sources like, in the U.S. would be the American Diabetes Association, et cetera. But, but, I mean, Alex, I think that coming out of this project, there were additional resources that were identified. Do you want to talk to any of those? Well, as you mentioned, uh, Nova Nordisk was uh, a funder for this research, which is fantastic because, I mean, it really adds to the landscape of literature and draws attention to the importance of this research um, in diabetes management and the role that family members can play. So they've put together a website, which is really fantastic. Um, Highly recommend you check it out, www.talkhypos.com. And at this website, you'll be able to find additional resources around hypoglycemia, what it is, et cetera, uh, how to be able to detect it and manage it. And it also includes a series of film experiments. And so this was um, a really interesting uh, component of of this campaign that really looked at um, focusing on the taking a human lens and a human look at what actually hypoglycemia means, uh, not just to, to, the, to the individual experiencing it, which of course can be traumatizing, uh, but also, also to their family members and those who are involved in their care on a day-to-day basis. Uh, so check it out, and I, I, I you know, we've we've gone through it, we love it. So yeah, they're very powerful videos. So uh, you know we would encourage your listeners to go to that website and see these vignettes as they're played out because I think that many of them will really be able to relate to the, uh, to the impact that 
and the the emotional response that family members have on uh, uh, is that are displayed in these videos. Wonderful. Well, thank you both for joining us and raising awareness around this topic related to diabetes self-care. Uh, coming up, we're going to talk about hypoglycemic events from, a, from the patient's perspective with the diabetes psych. But first, we're going to get back to some music. Our diva inspiration, Jennifer Hudson, started performing and singing in the church choir and doing community theater at the age of seven. Here's a song off her debut album that was also featured in the first Sex in the City movie. Let's listen to All Dressed Up in Love, courtesy of Sony Music. National Diabetes Awareness Month celebration. I'm in love with that song. I've been playing it all week, and I've been actually doing my exercises to it. Hey, the theme of Diabetes Awareness Month this year is family and diabetes. Stigma that has historically been attached to the diagnosis of diabetes can contribute to stress and feelings of shame and judgment. Here to talk more about the emotional implication of a diagnosis of diabetes is my next guest. She's a clinical psychologist and adjunct professor of medicine at the Diabetes Research Institute and co-author of Friendship Matters, available on Amazon. Please welcome back to the show, Dr. Wendy satin Rappaport. Hello, Dr. Wendy. Hi, happy to be here. Happy to be here. Um, I really like celebrating National Diabetes Awareness Month with us. We love it. Yeah, thank you. Um, glad to be a part. And I and I love the the research that you were just talking about because, you know, 22 years ago I wrote my first book, which is called When Diabetes Hits Home: The Whole Family's Guide to Living Well with Diabetes. And I, I think that presents the whole point, which is that chronic stress of worrying about hypoglycemia let alone anything else, or the fear of what will happen in the future, is not just felt by the patient, but it's felt by the family or the person's child. But you know who else is felt by? The, the healthcare staff. You know, when you come in with lots of low blood sugars, it is agitating to your doctors and nurses as well, and educators, because they feel like they've done something wrong. You know what I mean? Like that's one of the first things that I feel happens to people. Everybody's involved in that kind of conversation, you know, and I like talking to professionals too to say like, well, what does that feel like? Why are you angry at your patient? Because in the end, hypoglycemia only occurs to people who are taking care of themselves, you know, because they're targeting and you're always going to have a low, though I think less now with continuous glucose monitoring. There's so much more safety about preventing a low. Yeah. And I feel like this uh, and I feel like those moments of low blood sugars could also be a rock in the road towards acceptance, which I talked about at the top of the show, you know, because people who think everything's going right and then have an unexpected, very traumatic moment could suddenly just find themselves having their feet swept under them and 
there goes any kind of uh, acceptance uh, about the diagnosis because it might seem like it's just beyond their control to manage. Well, you know what? That is the what first are, feeling, and, 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 and that's what people can feel at first. But then they need to change it up and change the way they think about it and say, no, this low doesn't feel good. And thank goodness I wasn't driving, you know, or whatever it is. Um, but it means that I'm targeting healthy blood sugars because you're always going to get a low. Not always, but you will get a low if you're targeting well. So if you've got to change up your thoughts and say, this just means that I'm a person who's trying to have normal blood sugars. So occasionally I'm going to have a low. I'm a good person whether I get a low or not. And I'm a good person no matter what my diabetes is. But I feel better. Until I get the low, nobody feels good at the low. The low, actually, besides that kind of irritability, is really almost equivalent to what an anxiety attack is. You know, and there is a correlation that people with diabetes sometimes will have anxiety, partly because they're worried about the lows or maybe they're worried about the future. But there's a similarity. It's irritability, maybe dizziness, lack of coordination, they, things, they feel confused, they're shaking, they're sweating. That is just like an anxiety attack, right? Well, yes, and I have a good friend in the New York area. He has a sister living with type 2 diabetes. She's had it for several years. She has had multiple experiences that are very traumatic around hypoglycemic events. And so she's been hospitalized, and because she's so fearful, she has been sneak eating to avoid it. And I'm just curious, like, how would you even begin to address that? Because that, the fear and anxiety really, uh, I, I just see how dangerous it could be for someone to really kind of take charge of their care when they are in that kind of, what you're saying, like a, a real um, anxiety attack or, you know, just so afraid of what could happen that they're actually, um, you know, working against themselves in some ways. Yes, no, I like what you're saying, and I, I think the first thing is doing what you said. You're naming it, that honesty, a place that you can name it. And I think, who could you say to somebody, listen, I've been sneaking food because I'm afraid of lows. And, and you think about it. What is your family good member going to say? Are you kidding me? You must be crazy. Why are you doing that? Versus learning the skill of saying, I'm so glad you're, open up, you're opening up about what it is that you're doing. That's the first start, naming Naming your patterns, you know, because otherwise we could be, you know, and those are the skills. I, feel, I, I think I said this before when I was on the last time. I feel like everybody needs to have a psychologist or a coach when they get diagnosed because these things are going to come up. And I think the family is the patient, not just the patient, because they're either going to be like, I like to teach people, for example, like if you get a blood sugar and your mother knows that your blood sugar is 250, she should say to you, I'm so glad you've tested Versus, what have you been doing? What did you eat? How come it's like that high? Why didn't you do that? Why don't you take this? You know what I'm saying? Like, I want to teach that, that mother how to stay. So glad you tested. What are your thoughts, honey, about that blood sugar? You know, or spouse, right? I mean, Well, I just feel like, you we, know, people are so caught up in their own lives today, and we all work such a tight rope with the balance of, you know, achieving our things and getting by month and month with rent and the micro stress of just dealing with what's going on in Washington, which we won't get into, but just all of this confusion <laughs> in life. Uh, the last thing I wanted, you know, I do want 
as a, as a family member, I do want you, and I'm going to use the wrong word, control that. And I know a lot of people who point the finger, use that harsh voice, attack them like you were saying. And so, you know, I know we're talking more tonight to pay uh, to people living with diabetes rather than the family around them. But this, you know, this is really, I would think, where you have to bring all of these people in the room together to really have what you're saying, like being honest and open about how you really feel about it. Because if people are combative when they're having those low blood sugar moments, most people take that as they're in the right mind when they're being combative and don't realize that there's something biological going on in that person. And I think that, you know, a lot of times they just think like they don't want my help, they'll never want my help, and when I offered help, they were fighting me. And so that would stop them from even wanting to address the issue again, where my belief is that the person who was experiencing that firsthand wasn't even aware of what they were doing. Exactly. And so that's why if the person says to you after, my God, you were so rude to me. And you go like, yes, you know what, thank you for letting me know. That's going to be your favorite thing to say, whether you're the person with diabetes or the family member. Thank you for letting me know. Because, you know, I don't mean to be irritable, but I'm irritable when my blood sugar goes low. And I'm also irritable when it's high. I'm also sometimes irritable when, it, you know, it goes up and down. So, you know, here's an interesting thing, Max. My, my husband had some health problems, and I ended up having to be the one that was helping him with his diabetes. So I'd go up to him and I'd say, okay, I'm going to test you now. And he'd go like, you're just testing me. Why are you testing me now? And so I would say, after all these years of being a professional, right, I'd say, are you kidding? If you don't care about yourself, how can I care about you? And then I go like, oh, my God, that's just what I told everybody not to say for 40 years. So now I say to him when he says to me, why? I just tested. I say to him, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't hear you. Did you say how sweet it is that you're trying to help me feel good? Thanks so much. And so we laugh when I say that because it's this contrived message. But I've actually just told myself that I'm pleased I'm a good partner, even if he doesn't appreciate it at that moment. You know what I'm saying? So the truth is he doesn't complain now because he knows I'm going to say the same thing anyway. So I take care of myself. But we discuss this. We have a plan. We always have to hear each other. And it's not blame or fault or guilt or shame. So that is part of the adjustment of diabetes. You know, and also but it's, it's like, something like you're saying to the, the language around, around it as well. And using, just like you said, changing the language, right? Because I guess we all fall into that pattern of shame and blame and just wanting something to be over. You know, we don't want to sit in the chaos. We want to get it done quickly and move on. And so I think, uh, you know, we don't always approach it in the most loving way. And you identified earlier that even some of our healthcare professions could fall into that trap of using language that isn't really helpful or healthful for the person but could be quite harmful or hurtful. Talk a little Absolutely. bit about that, about some of the terms we use, the idea of this non-compliant, non-adherent, the stigma associated with being lazy, unmotivated, or unwilling to take care of yourself or your health. Yes, and, and don't forget, by the way, that when you aren't taking care of yourself or even when you first get diagnosed and the blood sugars are high, you are probably experiencing some depression, not just because you feel shame that you're not taking care of yourself or fear that you're not taking care of yourself, but because biochemically when the blood sugars are high, you don't feel well. You are tired. You are irritable. You have depression. And, and like 50% of people go undetected, and that shouldn't be happening. You know, we should have 
psychologists on the teams and you should be, you know, looked at as a whole person. You know, like there, there is a scale that Bill Polanski wrote, which is called the Diabetes Distress Scale. And uh, in this last book I wrote with Janice Russell, who's a dietitian, we, we wrote up the Diabetes Impress Scale. So we kind of took his wonderful scale and we said, let's stop being negative. Let's talk about what we did well. You know, not like what you didn't do. I mean, there are 15 things a day to do. That's an underestimation. You have to exercise. You have to test. You have to eat right. You have to plan ahead. You have to go exercise. You know, if you don't do 20% of them, you know, then you say to yourself, I did 80. I did 80%. So part of it is the skill of positive reframing. Here's what I've done really well. And gee, when do I fall off the wagon? Oh, I see. I'm getting hungry. I'm probably dropping Lower. I'm not low, but I'm dropping. So it's, you know, it's being a detective. It's being a scientist. It's having empathy for yourself that this is a big adjustment, you know, and that you are a good person who has diabetes. Not that you're a good person because your blood sugars are good. And you don't call the blood sugars good. You call them in the range of normal or just outside of normal, which, by the way, is still a quote unquote, good blood sugar, because nobody can, you can't meet your targets. The targets are just to give you an idea. You know, I remember like a, a patient said, I was 121. I, I didn't do well. I go like, what are you talking about? They, get, like, they told me that I should try to do 70 to 120. And so he was really feeling that 121 meant he wasn't doing well. So you have to be careful who we're speaking to and how they take our messages because they're so ready to judge well, you know, themselves. That's interesting because on, um, earlier this week we posted, you know, we're, the holidays are upon us, right? And um, Halloween mm-hmm. kicked off the next two and a half months of self-indulgence. And um, so we posted something for our Facebook fans about getting back on track, about the idea that we know everyone's human and that you may slip up or whatever you want to call that term, kind of go off track with what your um, goals are. And this idea of practicing forgiveness, before we wrap up this segment, because you were just talking about it, can you talk a little bit about that importance about, like you said, managing a target rather than perfection? Because I feel... You know, you see in the papers today that we're in such a social media world that everyone just wants to be perfect all the time. And this is, it could be detrimental in many ways, I think, to people's overall health. Yes, because when you're not perfect, then you're not okay. Versus that, you you know, the concept of positive reframing, here's what I am doing well. Here's what I want to change and maybe do a little bit better. And I'm not, it's not about being compliant or adherent. It's choosing, in words that you've talked about, it's choosing to do this. So that if it's Halloween and you decide you feel like binging on candy, choose to do it. Once you choose to do it, you may not need to do so much because sneaking is definitely something we don't ever want to do with diabetes. We want to planfully eat things. And it has changed. By the way, that's another interesting thing, too. If you got diabetes 20 years ago, we use different words, different terms. We have different aspects of ways of controlling the diabetes that are easier and better. So we don't have to use those words and make ourselves feel badly about things. You know, so whatever you learned 20 years ago is different now. So it used to be forbidden foods. There's no more forbidden foods. There's just matching exercise, and, and this is a challenge, matching exercise and insulin with our food. So you're going to eat your Halloween candy? Once you choose to eat it, you don't have to have it all because you can choose to have candy another time. You know, it's very different. If I tell you not to think blue, 
the first word that comes into your head is blue. And so in the old days, I think the eating, eating disordered issues that came up for people with diabetes, because you're always monitoring and looking, and that is forever hard, but nothing is forbidden. So if you go to a, if you go to a dietitian who's been trained 40 years ago, you hope that they make sure that they've changed their attitude too. And if you've been diagnosed 40 years ago, make sure you change your attitude too. That doesn't mean you have to have food just because you can. You know, some people still like to, you know, abstain. Um, but there's many ways to do things well with diabetes. We have so much more freedom now with our, with our choices and what we do. But you got to allow yourself that. to deal with the well, anger. Yeah, I finally said something good, Matt. <laughs> you always say something good. That's why we love to have you back every year to help us celebrate National Diabetes Awareness Day, I mean month, as well as World Diabetes Day, coming up in two days, uh, Thursday, November 14th. Uh, we're going to get a big spoonful of inspiration in a minute, talking to two amazing women who've experienced wonderful weight loss journeys. But first, we're going to go back to our Diva Inspiration, who cites two divas as her big influences, Jennifer Hudson and Whitney Houston. Of course, the biggest inspiration and influence in her life was the Queen of Soul herself. And guess what? Jennifer Hudson's going to star opposite Marilyn Wayans in a movie about Aretha Franklin coming out next year. Right now, though, it's time to hear what she sounds like when she teams up with another American Idol diva. Wow, it's all divas tonight. Fantasia on I'm Only His Woman, courtesy of Sony Music. Let's listen. I'm his only woman, woman. And you can break up this home. Welcome back to Diabetes Late Night. I'm your host, Mr. Diva Bedek. It's the night of all divas all the time. And as many of you know, that's right on point for the man who created Diva Bedek. I was the former personal assistant to Luther Vandross back in the day. And during the time I worked for Luther, he gained and lost about 100 pounds more or less six to eight times in that time. When he had his stroke in 2003 related to type 2 diabetes, his weight was well over 300 pounds. I say all that because I have always strayed away from focusing on weight loss stories on my podcast and at uh, our website and also at our live events. But tonight, in the spirit of Diabetes Awareness Month, and because I wanted to turn the spotlight on these two amazing weight loss journeys that I truly find inspiring myself, I thought I should change all that. Change my tune, I guess is the best word to say when you're the host of Diabetes Late Night. Uh, and so we're going to be talking to two divas, and our first guest is living with type 2 diabetes. She's lost well over 100 pounds by making small changes, and her amazing transformation was recently profiled in Diabetes Forecast magazine. Please welcome Autumn to the show. Hi, Autumn. Hi, Max. Thanks for having me on. 
I finally got you on the show tonight. I'm so excited that you could join us and kind of share with everyone your journey. It's such an amazing story. First, tell us, what was it like to see your face in uh, National Magazine for Diabetes? It had to be awesome when it came out earlier this year. Yes, it was amazing, and thank you for letting Ben know about me. Um, I had never seen that side of myself until I saw the magazine. Well, it's just—it's such an incredible story about how these small changes really work, and I, I'm so anxious uh, to discuss that. I want to go back, though, before you began the weight loss journey and find out a little bit about your lifestyle prior to weight loss. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about um, what was going on in your life, how, what what your activities were, and maybe some of the habits that attributed to why you were at your most uh, your top weight, I guess we should say. Um, back then, I didn't exercise. I thought that would be a chore. Um, cooking a healthy meal, I thought was going to take time and be an inconvenience. So the processed food, the chicken fingers, the hot dogs, the drive-through windows, um, that was my excuse. It was I worked all day and I'm tired and, you know, I'm just going to stop and get this and, you know, maybe tomorrow I'll have a salad. And that never happened. So it was always about excuses. And we should tell everyone, you're married and you have three young sons, so you're managing the household. How how were they back then? Were they in on, I mean, were they more than willing to have the chicken fingers? Were they... Uh, you know, oh, a part of that lifestyle, were they, were they much more active and, and maybe a little bit different than you were at that point? I'm just curious. Um, yeah, of course, they were, you know, they're normal kids. Um, well, what we think is normal to, I don't know, I guess most people, um, they like all that stuff, pizza, chicken fingers. So they had no problem when that's what was for dinner every night. Um the two younger ones, they always played outside. Um, my older son, he's now 20. Um, he was at that teenage where he liked to hang out inside. So I noticed that he was starting to get that way too, like me, lazy, not wanting to do anything. Um, and I knew I had to start changing that. Um, I joined some support groups and I ordered a bunch of cookbooks. I started looking on Pinterest. Um, and I just, I knew that I, looking at myself, I could not let my entire family end up like me. It, it was a horrible feeling. And so how did you start, Autumn? Um, I started by, actually, um, I went into our pantry and I completely threw out everything that I thought was unhealthy. Um, I threw away the rice. I threw away the pasta. I even threw away the kids' Halloween candy. Um, I put it in trash bags. I took it out to the curb. And I went to the grocery store, and I started buying fruits and vegetables. Um, I came up with meal plans. I started walking, even though I could only get to the end of my street. I started walking 
10 minutes a day after work, after dinner, um, until I was walking three miles, 45 minutes to an hour every night. I started looking forward to it. I mean, I ended up with a broken ankle and I walked on it for three months in pain, not knowing it was broken. And when I was finally told that I needed to stop, it was heartbreaking because I exercise was my new life. So it's been, it was really hard. I couldn't exercise for quite a while. Um, Once I got back into it, it was a little bit hard at first to get back into the groove. But once I did, I was excited and I was ready to go again. Recently, I injured my I knee. Want to go back. So, I want to tell you something. I want to go back to what you said earlier about cleaning out the pantry. I mean, how did the family react? And I would think for most listeners, they would think they could probably get by without rice and pasta for a few days, but then suddenly they want it again. So does that pantry have rice and uh, pasta in it today? Did your kids have Halloween? Halloween? candy two weeks ago or has it from that day on has it always been like that so what Um, what happened i mean just kind of talk to us a little bit about this adjustment from what the all or nothing approach so to speak around food well my pantry it does have rice it's not white rice it's whole grain uh it's a lot of seven grain it's quinoa it's things like that um it does have pasta uh, it's got whole wheat pasta, veggie pasta. Um, my kids did go trick-or-treating, at least the youngest one did. Um, candy's still in the kitchen. Of course, it's in a cabinet where I don't have to look at it all the time when I walk by. And they understand that now. Um, I may go get a piece once in a while. I don't not eat candy. Um, but they know it's kept in the cabinet. So I do have those things around my house. They're just maybe a a healthier version now. And they've grown accustomed to that. They don't really know any different anymore. Well, I think a lot of wives listening would be curious, like, how your husband related to this. Is he on board with it, or has he fought you tooth and nail and told you, I'm not going to eat that rabbit food? No, at first it was it was a little difficult, but it was me. It was me saying at first it was like I'm not going to eat that, and I can't eat that, and I can't believe you're making that for dinner. Now it's he helps me meal prep every Sunday. Um, it was in the beginning I meal prep just lunches for me. Now I meal prep lunches. He helps me for both of us. Um, he helps me find healthier versions of you know ways to make things. Um, There are nights when we don't eat pasta, we make zoodles. We bought a zoodle maker. Um, We do all kinds of things. We go to Sam's shopping on Saturday together and grocery shopping. Um, He doesn't let me go by myself anymore. He wants to be a part of it. He loves food, and he loves good food and healthy food. And I didn't realize that until this happened. So he's been a big part a big, amazing part to help me. I love it. And I have to say, you're an amazing inspiration to me because you just uh, meal preps. You post your meal preps <laughs> online and show the photos of yourself doing it. So I, I think this is such an incredible habit. 
tell us how you do it and and what the uh, and how you came up with this plan because you are very religious about doing it. I watch it every week and I get inspired to pack my lunches for the week as well. I think it's such an important technique. We'll be talking to Patricia Addy Gentle and Dr. Wendy about it later, but I, I personally think uh, it's just an incredible habit to get into. It really makes a difference. It so really talk, does. Talk about autumn's uh, meal planning because I feel you could write a book on this. I've been told that. Um, I've been told that people would like to hire me to make their food. Um, During the week and sometimes on Saturdays or even in the evenings when I'm just kind of hanging out and the kids are watching TV, um, I go online. I go through Pinterest. My friend Cindy Lou has a Pinterest page. I go through her recipes. I have bought several cookbooks. Um, I ask my husband, what would you like for lunch this week or next week? Or what do you guys want to have for dinner? Is there anything different that you want? Um, and I sit down and I try to figure out because being diabetic, I have to count carbs, calories, fat, everything. Um, my fitness pal has become one of my best friends. <laughs> um, I put all my recipes into it, adjust the serving sizes. I do whatever it takes. If it's something that I want to eat to figure out how much of it can I eat that's going to satisfy me, yet still be good for my diabetes. So I take into account, you know, what vegetables are we going to have? What protein are we going to have? What starch are we going to have? I make a list. We go to the store. And on Sunday, we, we start. And it's, you know, what are we going to make first? What do we need to get in the oven? What do we need to start chopping up? I found some shortcuts um, with frozen cauliflower rice. Um, I go to Publix, the grocery store. Sometimes they already have the chopped up vegetables. That helps me cut some time out. Um, That lets me have more time with my family. But most of the time, I mean, my husband's in the kitchen cooking with me. Um, And I've got my meal prep containers. We start lining them across the counter. I've got crock pots and Instapots and an air fryer now. Um, I've usually got stuff in the oven on top of the stove. Uh, I just and you make spend half of the day cooking. Week, right? Are you making I everything do. for the week, all meals? I, everything but dinner. Everything but dinner. You make all the lunches um, for everybody and store them in the freezer or refrigerator for the week. So Monday when you wake up, the refrigerator is just loaded. You just grab it and go to work. Is that how it – I mean, just explain that part of the process to people. I, I do for my husband and myself, yes, um, breakfast and lunch. Um, on the containers, um, I usually write an M for Mike, my husband, or an A for myself. Um, and in the morning, we get ready for work. My lunch bag's in the freezer. I pull it out. We just go in the refrigerator and pull a container out with my A on it stick it in my bag and I'm out the door. Um, I like it because it's, I don't have to stand in the kitchen going, Oh gosh, what am I going to take today for lunch? And then it turns into, Oh, well, you know what? I'm not even going to worry about that. Um, there's a McDonald's down the street from work. I'm just going to drive through the drive through. This takes the guessing out of what I'm going to eat. And I've heard people say, how can you eat the same thing for lunch every day? And it's like, well, if I do it for one week, it's only five work weeks, five work days. Um, and sometimes I switch it up. In one of them, I might put 
quinoa or one I might put the whole grain rice, something different, or, you know, mashed potatoes, diced up sweet potatoes, something different to break it up. I love it. I mean, I've read that most of us just have a very narrow palate anyhow. All right, before we move on to our next (laughs) event, find out more. Uh, Amber, tell us, uh, let's talk about the numbers for a minute, and you're going to stick around because we want to hear more from you later on, but what was your, what weight did you start at, and where did you end up on your journey today? I started at 281 pounds, and it took a little bit over a year and a half to get down to 180 Wow, sensational. And how do you feel today? I feel great. I can bend over and tie my shoes and not be out of breath. I can walk from the car to the store, and half the time I beat my family there. It feels great. I love it. Well, we're so happy to shine the uh, spotlight on you tonight. Hang around. We're, we're going to be right back. But first, we're going to play some new music. I mean, another song, more music, I wanted to say. I'm all tongue-tied because Autumn's story is so amazing. Uh, ours even inspiration, <laughs> Jennifer Hudson, who lost 80 pounds, won an Academy Award and Golden Globe Award and Screen Actors Guild Award for Best Supporting Actress in the movie Dreamgirls. She also appeared in the film Sex in the City, The Secret Lives of Bees, and Black Nativity. Uh, check out this song, We're Gonna Fight, courtesy of Sony Music. Let's listen. Ain't nobody tell me about this here. My next guest is the founder of Vested in Prevention of Diabetes, a nonprofit foundation. Her type 2 diagnosis back in 2010 jump-started a total health transformation, re- resulting in her going from a size 26 down to a size 6. Please welcome to the show, Vanessa. Hi, Vanessa. Hi, Nick. Thank you so much for having me on Divabetics tonight. Very happy to reach Thank you so much you for joining us. I mean, you just... You just heard Amber, uh, I'm sorry, I keep wanting to call Autumn Amber, I don't know why that is, but you heard Autumn's story, you've got an equally uh, fantastic story of weight loss. What were some of the things though, that you heard in Autumn's story that kind of paralleled some of uh, what you were going through? Well, the key thing that she shared um, was the meal planning and how that played a major role in life and how just being organized about your self-care and what you're going to eat and when you're going to eat it, um, I clearly identified with that because prior to getting diagnosed with diabetes, I only had one routine for eating, and that was constant and at all times. So it's great to hear someone benefit from the value of meal planning and know that that helped my life as well. Well, and you said, Vanessa, in a pre-interview that, you know, you were pretty much a workaholic. You were working for Verizon 24-7, trying to get ahead like the rest of us are. Uh, I mean, at that point, I would assume you just thought there was no way you would ever have time to meal plan, 
before you went off with your day because you're working such long hours. Uh, what do you? How? What would you say to someone right now who's listening, who's kind of in that same boat, who just feels like there's no time for that? Uh, it sounds like a great idea, but it's more of a fantasy than a reality. My best advice to that person would be to start the fight for yourself, and it, it will begin with your first meal plan. Um, it, it's really important just not only in the diagnosis of living with diabetes, but for a person that advocates wellness at all times, that you take time for yourself. And if you realize that, you know, the food we eat is vital to our existence, if we recognize, you know, how important it is to have that in a healthy routine, um, I I would try to identify that self-care, that healthy routine, as two vital important factors for people that are um, overachievers and on a career path that's so driven that they forget about themselves because at the end of the day, your health is your wealth. Absolutely. And, you know, you spoke honestly or shared honestly about uh, your relationship to food and just um, what a complete change it's been. Do you mind going back in time and telling us a little bit about maybe the negative impact food had on your life and how you were able to overcome it? Because I think a lot of our listeners have shared similar experiences and would love to hear from you about it. So I will be very honest with everyone. When the year 2000 hit the millennium, um, I was overweight at that time. I spent 10 years gaining weight. So if you could imagine what 10 pounds or 15 pounds per year looks like on a person who actually now sits in a size 6 body frame, um, you'll recognize that food addiction is something very intense in people's lives. So when I talk about the intensity of being addicted to food, I will begin with just, you know, the three basic meals, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Typically, I woke up early because I always knew the importance of having breakfast. I had breakfast at home alone. Um, I got up and went to work and typically had breakfast with the girls in the office. And by 8.30 or 9 o'clock, 10 at the latest, I probably had a business breakfast meeting scheduled as well. Um, I duplicated that breakfast, lunch, and dinner. So if you find yourself eating more than one per meal and it's the same meal, let's, A, recognize we have a problem and try to limit our intake. Um, Another fault that I could, and, I mean, these are just life events, the way they occurred, so I'll describe them as faults or mishaps or um, what I experienced. As you start gaining weight, For me, exercise became obsolete. It was something that I definitely would not purposely find time to do. Um, Now, sitting here, I recognize the importance of movement, of exercise, be it chair exercise, yoga, running a marathon, whatever it takes, whatever makes, you know, your face smile and your body respond at the same time. Um, engage yourself in some activities. When I first got diagnosed with diabetes, I went um, to the extreme when it came to exercising. 
I I was told that I needed to increase my walking. So I made sure I walked after every meal. Um, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, there was a minimum of a 20-minute walk after those meals. I made sure that I spent half of my lunch hour understanding the food that I was going to eat, learning more about the foods that I should be eating, and definitely moving my body because that was so very important and that was something I neglected. So over a 10-year period, I, um, I think I can remember at the millennium probably being a size 14 or a 16. And by 2010, when I was diagnosed with diabetes, I was uh, comfortable in my mind, size 26, 28, with elastic. I always had to make sure there was elastic somewhere because I needed that extra stretch. But I stretched my body to a huge portion. And mentally, it was comfortable to say, hey, I'm a big girl. Big girls rule. Big girls are sexy. Big girls are called on the dance floor first or whatever it was in my mind. I identified with that to give myself um, some mental comfort and stability in a body that I knew was beyond my control, if that kind of shed some light on it. So overall, I, I had to, you know, accept that I, I was overeating. Food addiction is a major problem to overcome. Um, lack of exercise can be totally detrimental to your health. And I clearly identified with Autumn when, you know, she said, you know, tying shoes became easy. Um, originally, I am from New Orleans, so I can remember a Mardi Gras where, you know, someone was tying my sneakers at all times because they, the family knew there was no way I was going to be able to bend over, tie a shoe, and come back up alive, per se. Um, so just exercise, movement, remembering the hard times of the past, but always visualizing myself in a smaller, happier, lighter place. So if that can help anyone out there, I hope it does. Well, I think the amazing thing, too, and uh, Vanessa, in your story or insight is the fact that you have been dealing with some of the diabetes health-related complications uh, and still you have such positive attitudes. So talk a little bit about how, you, how you've been able to maintain uh, the spirit you're sharing tonight in the wake of dealing with some of the complications. So, guys, when we talk about complications from diabetes, one of the key things that I like to ask everyone to kind of remember or re-visualize with me is that moment when we're in that first diabetes education class and the educator stands up and she holds up this sheet of paper and she says, with diabetes, there comes complications. And here's a list of the complications you may encounter. And I'm going to distribute this to everyone and take a look at it. And some of the common things are boom, boom, boom. She may hit 10 things on a list of 1 million. Well, complications from diabetes are sometimes across the board. Um, but one thing I often stress is that every time you meet someone with diabetes, you introduce yourself to an individualized case, and very rarely are we duplicated in that sense. So I'm definitely an original. I can be imitated, and I pray this is never duplicated. My body has neuropathy, just like many people that experience diabetes. Neuropathy can affect a variety of nerves, and in my body, the vagus nerve has been impacted directly by neuropathy. 
The vagus nerve is connected to our digestive tract. So my body now has a complication that's clearly associated with the consumption of fruit and vegetables. And for a person living with diabetes, it's often stressed that we eat fruits and vegetables, that we have a very healthy, well-balanced diet, um, that we are exercising and making sure that our fiber intake, our carb count is accurate, et cetera. It is a science. So at the end of the day, I am now living in a body that has to be totally compliant to the science of living with diabetes, but I'm unable to eat fruits and vegetables due to my complication. So everyone has, you know, kind of stepped back and wondered, well, if you can't eat fruits and vegetables, and it took fruits and vegetables to help you go from, you know, like 375 pounds down to 165 pounds, please tell me, what are you doing now? Well, it took a lot of strategizing between my medical team and myself. Um, the doctors are constantly looking at my lab work to see where there is a need for vitamins or an increase of fiber or if my weight has gained or if I need to exercise or if there's anything in those lab works that could be adjusted by consumption of vitamins, supplements, or whatever it takes for me to survive. So in most cases, I tend to use vitamins and some fluid supplements to make it through my day to assure that I get the fiber intake, the macronutrients, as well as the micronutrients that it takes for the human body to survive on a daily basis. That means that I learned to use food for fuel. There is no overeating. There is no pantry that needs to be cleaned at my house because I cleaned it out a very prior to getting diagnosed with diabetes. And that's a heck of a story I'll tell you someday. But just overall, living with complications from diabetes can impact the body in so many ways. Every organ is at stake. So, I mean, I often tell people that the shocking thing for me was getting diagnosed with diabetes. The long processes of my diagnosis, along with complications, has educated me to a point where I feel confident that pursuing wellness from a preventive measure is always the best approach. Um, it, it's been very hard on many occasions. I mean, it's five years. I've not had a salad. I have no idea like what it would be like to enjoy that again. Um, the complication that I have is called gastroparesis. And right. the major side effect of gastroparesis is experiencing DKAs. And I've experienced seven DKAs. Wow. All right. Well, Vanessa, we're going to hear more from you in a minute. We're going to take a quick break and come back because, you know, it's National Diabetes Awareness Month, and what would it be without some games? I mean, this is Diabetes Late Night. But first, uh, I know you like her, Vanessa. You mentioned in your profile that Jennifer Hudson was a huge inspiration, so I'm sure you're going to be rushing off to the theaters this holiday season when she stars in the upcoming motion picture, Cats. She was described as playing an outcast from the rest of the cats in this movie, but once she seeks acceptance, she becomes some sort of hero. 
Um, looking forward to seeing that as well. I think Ian McKellen and Taylor Swift are in that movie. It'll be a lot of fun. But first, let's take a minute, listen to more Jennifer Hudson off her debut album. This is Pocketbook, courtesy of Sony Music. I got my head in a ponytail and they only trust me I can get them all. They say I drive like a model, curve like a bottle, watch me ever hit the wall and I make them say. Don't make me hit you with my pocketbook. Don't make me hit you with my pocketbook. Don't make me hit you with my pocketbook. Welcome back to Diabetes Late Night. It's game time. We're celebrating National Diabetes Awareness Month with the one and only Patricia Addy Gentle. Hello, Patricia. Hi, Max. How are you? I'm great. You told me, Max, we're going to play a game in November. You want to raise awareness for the unexpected that could happen while you're managing your diabetes so you could stay on track through not only the holiday season, but the rest of your diabetes life and live with wellness. Uh, So that's uh, what we're talking about before we play the game. It is really important to be prepared for something unexpected happens. What's your advice around that since so many people will be traveling this holiday season? Um, Always be prepared. I guess it's kind of like the um, Boy Scout motto, but there are certain things that you always should have with you as a person living with diabetes. Um, So when you're traveling, you should have your medications, of course, enough to last you a few days past the anticipated time that you will be away. You should have extra prescriptions in case um, you have to get something, an emergency occurs, and you might need to fill that prescription and get extra medication. However, I I must say that on my last trip with my uh, husband, who forgot his medicines, he packed them and still left them laying in the house, we were able to go to a chain pharmacy where we normally go and get prescriptions So because the data is kept in a computerized system, we were still able to get some medicines. But make sure you have some type of contingency in place for mishaps like that. You also need lancets and strips. You need um, fast-acting glucose, like your glucose tablets or something uh, to help you in case of a low blood sugar. But those are just a few of the things that you definitely need to keep with you, a way to cleanse your, you know, hand sanitizer. Whether it's hand sanitizer, you actually soap and water would be better, but alcohol preps, but something uh, so that you are able to do blood sugar tests. Make sure that your equipment is in good working order and that your strips are not expired. Hello. So in the spirit of our deep inspiration Jennifer Hudson, tonight's game is what do you carry in your pocketbook to help you with those unexpected moments in self-care. Let's bring back uh, Dr. Wendy Satin Rappaport. She's one of our judges on tonight's game competition. Welcome back, Dr. Wendy. Thank you. Happy to be there. Here. Uh, you just heard in our two contestants, <laughs> Vanessa and Autumn, you heard both of their stories. What did you, as a diabetes psych, what kind of messages or themes came out to you that you'd love to reinforce with our listeners right now? 
you know, it's funny. They, they turned around any food addiction into something powerful, purposeful, and filled with pleasure. And Autumn, in particular, talked a lot about how she gave that gift to her family, her intimacy with her husband. She didn't have diabetes. I don't know if that would have happened if she hadn't changed her habits. I don't know. You know what I'm saying? So the discipline of both of them, um, you know, and, and changing, changing up the food addiction tube, knowing their feelings, having better interactions, look at their articulateness. I mean, did I say that right? Articulateness about how they feel. I mean, those are the things, those are the skills, very skillful. That's what I want everybody with diabetes. I want everybody to have that skill. And we have diabetes even more important to really acknowledge, to know. I mean, there was so much pleasure and delight in their planning. You know, and part of it, I was thinking when people say to you, how can you eat that every day? Autumn was saying, people say, how can you eat the same thing every day? You know, um, you say, I, I, how can you not? I'm kind of curious. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I have so much pleasure from this order and planning. So we never have to be defensive because what that means is somebody else might be more out of control. So, so part of it is knowing ourselves and also how to handle with other people their comments. You know, and I think, by the way, in your purse, you should also bring a vegetable platter, except for Vanessa. I'm sorry, you can't. But, you know, that's, uh, right. that's what I have, uh, you know, but, but that's the gift you give to other people. It's symbolic. You're giving them a gift of learning a how to eat well. Day would that hurt anyone? All right, well, let's bring back yes. two of our fabulous uh, divas tonight. We've got both uh, Amber, I mean, Autumn. Why do I want to do that, Autumn? Autumn and Vanessa. Yeah. Tonight's game, what is in my pocketbook? Our two contestants are Vanessa and Autumn, who've both undergone amazing weight loss transformations. Our two guest judges tonight, Dr. Wendy Staten Rapport and our very own Patricia Addy Gentle. Uh, Dr. Wendy, you will have the. Oh, that's the wrong. Oh, you've got the bell, and Patricia's got the. And ladies, it's if better I let you, you Patricia, than me. Ooh la la. That will be me. If I like what you're saying. Ooh la la. Oh, you both look fabulous tonight. So I'm gonna Ooh la la. Okay, I love that. Sorry. I'm, I'm having too much fun over here. All right, so here's our first question. In uh, What's in your pot? What are you carrying in your pocketbook? I'm trying to do it like Jennifer Hudson. We're going to go uh, full alternate between the two contestants. If you want to call a friend, uh, Autumn, you could call Vanessa. And Vanessa, if you want to call Autumn, you could help them on the answer. Our judges <laughs> will reveal the answers at the end of each question. Our first question, starting with Autumn. Glucose monitor kit, kit helps you track your sugar levels in your blood. It lets you know when you're getting when they're going high or low. What year was the first blood glucose meter invented for home use? Was it A, 1950, B, 1960, C, 1970, or D, 1980? Uh, Patricia's on the drum. I'm going to say job, B. Patricia. You're going to go with B, 1960. Uh, yes. I'm just curious, Vanessa, did you have a, were you feeling that too? Um, were you feeling I was the awesome feeling... Were you feeling the 60s? I was thinking the 50s for some reason, but, um, hmm, yeah, we could go with the 60s. 
Okay, uh, Patricia. Oh, what are you holding up, Patricia? <laughs> really? What's the answer, Patricia? Well, unfortunately, glucose monitoring uh, systems for home use were not available quite so early. The first glucose monitor was um, for for home use was in the 80s, was 1980, oh, wow. actually. Um, wow. and, and I'm going to date myself, but I even remember working in hospitals where patients were not able to test blood glucose at home. It was only done at the doctor's office or it was done in the hospital. Um, they used the urine for testing to see if, if sugar had traveled to the urine. But the at-home kit was actually 1980. Doctors were able to test in the 70s. And, Dr. Wendy, I loved your advice about uh, checking your blood sugars. I mean, you've seen those numbers. Uh, maybe you don't love the numbers. I know Autumn always posts her fasting numbers in the morning, but I love the way, the language you use to talk to yourself around numbers. Uh, can you just remind everyone what you were saying earlier about just how to change your philosophy about that? Yes, that you say, I'm so glad I tested. You see something that's 190 in the morning, and you go like, I'm so glad I tested. Now I know how to get it down and how important that will be. I think I'll take a morning walk and cut back my carbs for breakfast, you know, or take a little more insulin. I love that I'll solve this problem instead of, you know, what could be like, oh, I'm so depressed, like I knew I shouldn't have eaten that last night. I'm so wrong. I'm so bad. I'm not saying you can't look at your behavior to figure out why a number is, but a number could be that you're getting sick or if you're a woman getting your period and, you know, it's a number, it's information, it's not a judgment, and it's not permanent, it's static. You know, I mean, it's, it's, not, it's not static, it's not permanent, it will move and change based on you, your power to do something different. And if Great you get shit, <laughs> oh, you ain't gonna make me hit you with my pocketbook. Go ahead and do it then. <laughs> what? Don't make me hit you with my pocketbook. Luda. Hey, don't make us say you were talking about, hey, what's in your pocketbook? Vanessa, uh, Patricia Eddie Gentle was talking about traveling with diabetes earlier, and if possible, pack all your supplies together in your carry-on bag so you have everything on hand when you're traveling, she said. But how long can you take medicine after the expiration date? Is it A, one to six months, B, one to two years, or C, you can't take any medication after the expiration date? Patricia's grabbing her drum. Vanessa, for the win. For the win, I'm going to go with A, one to six months. I think there's always a window, but if I'm wrong, I think C would be my next greatest guess. Oh, I see Dr. Wendy. Oh, she pulled a fast one. According to um, studies, we are seeing that medication, most medication, if it's stored under reasonable conditions, it will retain its potency for 70 to 80% of that potency as the original potency was. So it's not 100%, but 70 to 80% of the potency for at least one to two years after that expiration date, given that the container has been, even after the container has been opened, it's still potent. 
And there Dr. are Wendy some exceptions, however. Like, what? What's I'm that? sorry. I said, Dr. Wendy, what's your favorite uh, pocketbook in your closet? Uh, it's got uh, tiger, tiger look, yeah. It's, it's got leftover vegetables in it, too. I knew I should have cleaned it out before I put it away. <laughs> All right, we're, we're moving on. we got a couple more questions. Here comes Jennifer Hudson. Go ahead and do it, then. <laughs> what? Don't make me hit you with my pocketbook. Hey, if you're just tuning in, we're challenging two fabulous divas, Autumn and Vanessa, to tonight's What's in Your Pocketbook game with our two spectacular judges. We've got Dr. Wendy Tatton Rappaport and our very own Patricia Addy Gentle. All right, Autumn, you're back up. Okay. Uh, you should say you were profiled in Diabetes Forecast Magazine. Your question, keeping a good food supply of fast-acting uh, fast sugars in your pocketbook is a great way to avoid sugar lows. To treat hypoglycemia, the standard device is to consume 10 to 15 grams of fast-acting carbohydrate. Each of the following items provides roughly 10 to 15 grams of, heart, of carbohydrates except for one. Identify the one item that does not contain 10 to 15 grams of fast-acting carbohydrate. Is it A, 5 to 6 Lifesaver candies, B, 16 ounces of orange juice, or C, 2 tablespoons of raisin? And Patricia? I'm going to go with B. Drums, you're going, what's your final answer? I'm going with B. Uh, 16 ounces of orange juice you don't think is the right answer for 10 to 15 grams of fast-acting carbohydrates. Is that your answer? I think 16 ounces would be more than than 15 yeah. grams. Oh, Dr. Wendy. You got it right. Oh. Dr. Wendy, she's really yeah. right. It is. It's yeah. much more. It's like 30 grams of carbohydrates. But it is important, and it right. is important to know that amount of carbohydrates. Why? Why? Why is that? Well, yeah, you know, if you, you don't want to like <laughs> raise your blood sugar so high. You know, and people feel, you know, in fact, somebody made me have a low blood sugar when I first got into diabetes, so I'd understand what it was, and it made me want to have more and more and more. And of course, that now you have a new problem if you have more and more and more. So you don't want to do that for yourself. So having something ready and on hand for you, you know, your six ounces of, uh, actually, Patricia, what would it be? Six ounces of, of juice? That'd be um, enough. Four ounces of juice, I think. I would. Yes, in some cases it's four Maybe. ounces. It depends on the juice. Uh, but five to six ounces usually is a good, pretty good measure. Right. All right, good so job, Anna. Are you on the board? With <laughs> oh, you ain't going to get the Woo! make me hit you with my pocketbook. Go ahead and do it, then. <laughs> what? Don't make me hit you with my pocketbook. All right, Vanessa, if you get this next answer right, we'll go into a sudden death competition. If you get it okay. wrong, Amber will walk away with just applause for tonight, and maybe uh, Patricia will give her another drum roll, or potentially I might give her an ooh-la-la. Ooh la la. <laughs> All right, so uh, Vanessa, here you go. American yeah. Diabetes Association says no matter where you go, you should wear an alert identification if you're living with diabetes. But exactly where should you wear it? Is it A, your neck, B, 
your wrist, or C, your ankle? Patricia with the final answer. Where should you wear this final medical answer. alert bracelet? Well, I am pretty certain that it is B, final answer, the wrist. Is she right? Oh, judges. Wonderful answer. <laughs> Wonderful. Yes, EMT is right. trained to look at the wrist. Yes. So the best place to wear a medical alert bracelet would be on your wrist. Uh, does your husband wear, wear, wear one, Dr. Wendy? Uh, no, he wears me. <laughs> I mean, that I am around Vanessa and Amber, are you, uh, Autumn, are you wearing um, medical alert bracelets? I am. I, actually, I wear an alert around my neck. And what do you wear, uh, Autumn? Most of the time I wear a medical alert bracelet, and I actually have a necklace that's dressed there. Like if I go out, I can wear that. <laughs> All right. So uh, uh, we do have the tiebreaker question, but we're going to wait and ask it right at the very end. But first, I want to go back to where all you lovely ladies uh, have found support or are giving support. Let's start with you, Autumn, because we have a good friend in common, Cindy Lou. Tell everyone about the online support that you are a part of on a daily basis and tell everyone how much that, what impact that has had on your self-care. I am part of the Type 2 Diabetes Plate Method Support Group on Facebook, um, run by Cindy Lou, our mutual friend. Um, the support group has been a major part of my life. Um, learning from her and the other members about how important exercise and different foods are and, and meal prep. And I learned everything, I think, from the support group. Because it's a non-judgmental place. You can say what you're feeling. You can ask a question and not feel like you're being judged. It's a private group. Unless your friends are part of the group, they have no idea what you're posting, which is a good feeling to me and most of our members. A lot of people, they, they're they afraid to ask questions. This is a safe place, and and this has been... This has been the best thing for me. I love it. And Vanessa, you have actually gone on and shared your study with, uh, shared your story uh, with other people and actually coached them. So tell us a little bit about VIP Diabetes and the foundation you created. So VIP of Diabetes stands for Vested in Prevention of Diabetes. And one of the things that I've come to discover over the 10 years of living with this diabetes disease is that the prevention or the preventative efforts that everyone has to make has to be ongoing and continuous. There are several people here in the city of Philadelphia that walk around with prediabetes that is undiagnosed. So I find it equally important to bring awareness and prevention messages, educations, opportunities, cooking demonstrations, um, wellness conversations to the forefront of every event and um, opportunity to speak and share with people information about diabetes. 
Right. And Dr. Wendy, how can people find out more about the diabetes site? Um, well, you know what? Actually, I, I do have a website, but, you know, anytime that you look up just mental health in general, do it around the diabetes because I think cognitive behavioral therapy, the way we think about things um, really matters. Learn to be skillful in that. Family therapy, learn that your family has to learn how to do skillful things, as we said. And it really, anything on mindfulness or tolerating distress, regulating your emotions, being really good interpersonally, those are skills we need as people anyway. So you can look up any site that has those skills. And, and you know that I'm so into, like, you, you, have, you don't have to be crazy to see a shrink, but you have to be crazy not to, right? Not because you, ha- you don't Absolutely. see a shrink because you have a problem. You, you see a shrink so you don't. And if you start out with a problem, then you see a shrink to help correct that so you can follow through as these incredible, you know, women have talked about their changes. I mean, it's amazing to me that they did a lot by themselves and also with the groups, of course. I'm so into the group work being helpful, but getting your family members uh, to be a part of that. So when they say, what is your number, you say, I'd love that you're interested I'm not going to tell it to you until you learn how to say to me, I'm so glad you've tested, <laughs> you know? And so humor is another thing as well. Um, humor and compassion. Those are the two other things I think are important. Can I add a thought, by the way, about the hypoglycemia? Alcohol sure. um, and it is really a powerful source of, of promoting hypoglycemia. So when our kids go off to college, the enlightened conversations when you don't know what they're doing, if they're drinking for the first time, and you text your child every morning and you say good morning because you need to know that they're okay, right? And the other thing that, that is a concern is what do, with, with uh, marijuana being part of something that's happening in our country, we have to be aware of what that does also in terms of bringing hypoglycemia or in binge eating, you know, as a response to it. So just want to make that point, throw that in. Um, that those are two no, other, you know, issues. Yeah. No, that's great. And Patricia, I wanted to come back to you because you wanted to clarify the question about um, expiration dates when it comes to medication, specifically insulin. You wanted to clarify that uh, the answer reveals does not pertain to insulin. Uh, it does a, not. Um, yeah, insulin. Um, once you have punctured the um, vial, if you're if you're using uh, needles and and the needle and the vial, you have to discard that insulin within 30 days. Um, and once you, if, if it's refrigerated or it, it has not been used, then you go by that expiration date that the manufacturer gives. Great. Thank you so much. I want to thank all my guests for being a part of tonight's podcast and celebrating Diabetes National National Diabetes Awareness Month with us. Don't miss uh Next month, when we're playing holiday music from gospel great Yolanda Adams. Plus, check out our annual murder mystery podcast featuring Patricia and myself at Gingerbread Men Prefer Blondes. It's available for free on Blog Talk Radio and iTunes On Demand. Remember, every diva has an entourage, and I'm so glad to be part of yours. We're going to end this whole journey on weight loss by talking about Jennifer Holiday for a minute. She's the original dream girl. She said that her increasing weight negatively affected her recording career back in the 80s. So in 1987, she, um, after she lost her record deal, 
her weight was over 400 pounds. In 1990, at the age of 30, she underwent gastric bypass surgery and lost over 200 pounds, which she has successfully maintained to this day. Thankfully, her dramatic image change did not affect her voice at all, and she's gone on to have some amazing high points in her career since then. We're going to end with a showstopper from Dreamgirls featuring our very own Jennifer Hudson, courtesy of Sony Music. See you next month. Let's enjoy. And I'm telling you, I'm not going. I am telling you, I'm not going. You're the best man I'll ever know. That's no way I can ever go. No, 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 no way. No, 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 no way. I'm living without you. I'm not living without you. I don't want to be free.
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.